The views expressed by the speakers of Kama Plan podcast are those of the speakers only and may not reflect those of Kama, its members, or employees. Kama does not guarantee the accuracy of information provided by these speakers. Professional advisors should be consulted before implementing any options presented. Kama absolutely does not endorse or recommend any individual or organization, including the speakers. Kama, its members, and employees do not accept liability for losses and or damages arising from errors or omissions within, reliance upon, or any use of the information provided by the speakers. Individuals are strongly encouraged by Kama to conduct their own due diligence before making any investment choices. Kama does not act as, nor offer the services of, an investment advisor, CPA, realtor, or attorney. If tax, legal, accounting, investment, or other similar expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Road to Financial Freedom, a podcast that allows experts to share their stories and secrets to unlocking their financial independence. This podcast is brought to you by Camaplan, a self-directed IRA administrator in Ambler, Pennsylvania, that's focused on educating investors with different ways to grow their retirement savings faster through alternative investments. And I'm sure you all know the drill by now, we are continuing to record our podcast remotely this year. I'm Jess Jones, Camaplan team member and your podcast host. This week, our guest has gone from earning his bachelor's degree in biology in New York to brewing craft beer and working as a medical lab technologist in Utah, to opening a record store and learning the ins and outs of electrical engineering in Oregon, to starting a private tutoring business, to note investing in 2016 and 17, and now is traveling the country. So as you can tell, he is well-versed in following opportunities that will lead to unlocking new discoveries. His worldly knowledge from working in all levels of business and his understanding and compassion for those struggling with debt has enabled him with the skills to start both Force Fund LLC and First Position Capital LLC, two note investing funds that have resulted in positive returns for his investors and has granted him the ability to live off of the passive income of his investments. His funds have modified loan agreements, raised capital, and helped people keep their homes. So please welcome Michael Jones to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Hi, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much for being willing to sit down and join us this week. It's Thanksgiving week, so I'm excited to get to talk to you and uh, get a chance to learn some more about you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Of course. So let's just start. We always ask our guests to share a little bit more about their background and you know where they were born, uh, grew up and went to school, studied. You have a really interesting background, obviously, and what you started studying to where you are now. So I'm just curious about, you know, the your initial upbringing and, you know, what what things have stuck with you even now as you've as you've become a a known investor. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm a native New Yorker and I'm not from the city, though. I'm from upstate New York. And that's like uh, tons of dairy, dairy farms, and it's um, it's pretty it's pretty podunk. So I grew up in Utica, New York, which is a small town. Think uh, think like a John Mellencamp video. And I went to Whitesboro High School in Marcy, and um, and then I moved to the big city, which isn't the big city, but I moved to Albany, New York, to uh, study my bachelor's in biology before all the other stuff came about. Yeah. Interesting. So um, you then got involved in node investing. So how did, 
How did your background then kind of lead you from point A to point, it feels like almost like point Y, point Z. So you've had a lot of interesting trades as I touched on in your introduction in terms of, you know, you brewed craft beer and you worked as a (laughs) medical lab technologist and opened a record store and all of these different things. So um, I'm just curious about all the stories that you have from that and how that brought you to where you are now in node investing. Yeah, I think um, I always, I, when I was in Albany, I, I remember going to this coffee shop and thinking, oh, I'd like to run a coffee shop, or I think it'd be really cool to own your own business. I think that's where the idea sparked. I worked for a lot of small businesses. Um, when I was in college, I worked for a local bike shop. I raced bikes all through college, and so I was a bicycle mechanic as well. And so I saw... You know, I saw other people starting businesses and I thought, why not? Uh, But I took a more traditional path when I got my degree and I I felt like, well, I should actually follow some passions first before I hunker down and get a real job. And that's where the craft beer came into effect. And that was another small business that was, you know, they started that business uh, probably a year after I was hired there. So I saw the struggles there. And, um... From there, you know, then I fell into, I guess, a more traditional corporate world where I worked for these large medical labs, and um, I wasn't really happy. I wasn't really happy doing that kind of stuff, and I thought for the longest time it was uh, I was just in the wrong profession or the wrong occupation. And what I found about myself was I get I. The first year or two of working at a new job, I'd be very engaged and very interested. But then um, once the routine settled in, I became uh, very bored and very unhappy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that led to me um, breaking out of the traditional path. You know, I, I worked for Logitech Audio I, as an engineer, and um, but I wasn't even happy there. What I found was working for other folks for at least for me I know it's different for everybody but for me it was there was a limit to the, the creativity you could input into somebody else's business at a certain point and especially with engineering it felt like you had to be uh, there for maybe eight years before you could design something or do something other than testing a system or something like that so um, I guess my first real foray into going into trying to start a business was the, the record shop stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's while I was working at Arup, which was the medical lab. And that was in Utah, which is a whole nother story. But, um, how I got into note investing was long story short between a and X, Y, and Z was I started looking into how, how do people become wealthy? Cause I thought my problem was, I just need to get out of working, you know? So I went to Korea and I saw, I I was really interested in rentals and uh, apartments and things like that. But um, it seemed like just from a math standpoint that you had to take on this, these huge debts for like, I think the, the, the metric was, you know, like you should cash flow a hundred to two hundred bucks a door, and I thought that's so much risk. And so I never did end up buying mm-hmm. a rental. Um, 
late 2016, early 2017, I was the Northwest Real Estate Investor Association, one of the RIAs. Uh, a note guru guy, guy came and spoke. And uh, that's that's how it all began. That's what first first sparked it. Great. So it sounds like you definitely have a, a very strong belief that I I also kind of share in Mike the idea that following a passion is really what should should drive you at least, you know, to certain points in your life. Sometimes it doesn't always have to be the thing that drives you. It can be other things, but passion should be something that you you follow and honor. Um, so is there anything else in terms of like any disciplines or skills or knowledge from your, um, from those degrees in biology, engineering, um, and, you know, your tutoring background, your mathematics background, anything that have popped up in your process as an investor that you found like, oh, this is really random, but really interesting that this is coming up and it, it ends up being in these two very different fields, but being very similar for how I look at investing or the way I look at money now. Oh, for sure. Like, um, so I worked in FDA regulated labs mm-hmm. and that meant a lot of what they're, what are called standard operating procedures. And it's just it, a standard operating procedure is kind of like a consistent checklist you follow for any process. And the biggest benefit from that, it allows you to track uh, results from any deviation from the procedure. So you kind of, those standard operating procedures, although they're not very creative, they give you very consistent results. And so I, I implemented that right away when looking at deals. I started writing checklists and um, I started making big, big due diligence processes so that I could see, so that, because I, I hate risk. I am just, I'm not a big risk taker, even though it might seem that, that way from all the different careers. But uh, when it comes to money, I hate risk. And so mm-hmm. that standard, op- those standard operating procedures really taught me to follow a consistent process. And because things, sometimes something looks so good on the outside and then you dig into it and it's not so good. And so that helped me kind of uh, bring that to light. And then I would say the, the biggest benefit to investing has been my uh, engineering degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the, the mathematics from engineering and applying those, those mathematics to investing has been hugely beneficial. And I think that the biggest idea from engineering has been, you know, with engineering, you... I was really into creating systems. So when you create when you create a system, like say you're going to create a I don't know, a pair of headphones or something, which I used to do, you you try to create them so that they're they're robust as possible. And mm-hmm. what you do with that is you put those you stress them to the point where they break and you try to find all the areas in which that system will fail. And so that's, I, I've taken that mentality into my node investing where I, I know that, you know, I'm, I, I would say I'm an optimist, but I always say that hope is not a strategy. And so I always try to look at every investment deal and not just look at how much it can make or what its potential is, but, um, I'm really interested in how how will it fail? 
How will I lose everything? What condition and under what conditions will this investment fail completely? And starting and then going from there and trying to tweak whatever I need to, to deal with those issues. That's been the biggest thing I've taken from engineering is make things as robust as possible and don't be afraid to look at failure. I mean, deal with it before it happens, you know, so, because once the money's spent, the money is spent. So you really want to, you really want to look at the downside of things, not to be a pessimist. Um, I know it's not really sexy to look at the downside, but it's, <laughs> it, it has to happen, especially when. Right, exactly. It's a real thing. Yeah. That's, it's no joke. I mean, look what's happened in the world late, recently. Tons of downside, you know, mm-hmm. so. Exactly. I think that there's a realism to it. Yeah. For uh, to, to be a realist, but also be an idealist as an investor, I think is an important balance that people need. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You can't, I, I don't think you can just be an idealist. I've, I've known a lot of, a lot of fellow investors that they've, they've actually criticized me for what, what they perceive as me as being a very negative but I've also I also know those same investors have lost a lot of capital in deals that were really shiny and really uh, nice looking on the outside, and then they just weren't robust enough to handle like uh, like the COVID crisis. You know, like right. a lot of people are losing money right now because of that. So well, definitely, I think that that's super interesting. The the things that you do bring up, you know, when I asked that question, I really wasn't sure what your answer was going to be, uh, and I think that the the answer is very interesting. It's it's got me thinking about things in a in a different way, and you know how I have a my degree is in theater and English, so the fact that I sit here and talk to investors every week is kind of yeah. a it feels like a hard left, but at the same time, I also am like, oh, well, you know, these little things I picked up from talking to people in a in a fake scene where the circumstances were completely fictionalized. And now I now I talk to established investors every day and, and that sort of thing. It, it's it's crazy how those those little things that you don't think are going to mean something in a different field can really actually take you farther than you would have imagined. So, and I'm the same way too. I try to be really realistic to a point where I've also been kind of criticized for being too cautious or too negative or that sort of thing. But I think that a certain amount of caution is, is healthy. For sure. Yeah. Um, Because if anything we've seen in the past, well, look at the, we've had a great global financial crisis in 2008, which Mm -hmm. in, that was only 12, 12 years ago or so. So it seems like these quote unquote black swan events are happening every 10 to 12 years. So it's kind of foolish not to think that they won't happen again. And, but it's crazy how the, the human mind works and they just, how it, it just uh, assumes what's happening now is going to keep going forever. And so it's, it's a tough place to put your mind, but um, you know, like with theater, I was just thinking when you were saying that, like I've done some sound design for some theater productions and I don't know, you, you probably know about tech week. Oh tech yeah. Week, yeah that's, like, that's when they're trying to break the whole thing. You know, that's when they're trying to deal with all the issues that are going to come up so that it doesn't come up during the performance, you know? So whether it's a performance 
or whether it's a it's an investment. I think I think it's just a state of mind, you know, a healthy state. Absolutely. Of mind. Yeah, yeah, having that, like you said, it exactly the. I I like the way you frame it as a you know this robust system. Um, it's a really great way, I think, for a lot of people who may not be as well as familiar with the investing scene or maybe coming from a completely different background, like someone like myself or like yourself, um, to hear like, okay, well, there's a there's something that I can that I can do. I can take necessary steps in order to make an investment happen. So I think that's a great way to put it, Mike. Thanks for you know for sharing all that information with us. Oh, sure. You got it. <laughs> Absolutely. So we talk a little, you touched a little bit on failures. So I am curious um, if you yeah. have any stories about, <laughs> it's such a, that was a low key pessimistic way to, to frame the question, but <laughs> but I really um, mean it in a positive way. What are some of the lessons that you've kind of learned from the early successes or failures you've had as an investor or as an entrepreneur as you've gone through different businesses? Are there any major stories or major obstacles that have stuck out to you? And how did you overcome yeah. them? What major lessons or takeaways do you have from those stories? I would say the biggest one, it took me so long to get over this. I was, and it, it had to do with the record shop thing. Uh, I was, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in, I was in Salt Lake City, Utah, I was working as a medical lab tech in that FDA lab. And I had a really sweet schedule. I'd work seven days on for 10 hours a day, and then I'd have seven days off. And I got, among the other things I'm interested in, I got really, I got really into uh, uh, DJing electronic music in clubs. And so that, that all, so I had friends in that scene. And so on my off week, I would DJ electronic music. And then I had a buddy that started working in a record shop. And so I started hanging out in the record shop and the manager there offered, offered me a a job on the side on my off week. And so I took him up on it. It was a, you know, it was a chance to be around music all day and, and all the things I liked. And it was also a a big, like when you work for a record shop and you're a DJ, you just tend to get more gigs. And so Mm -hmm. that was another thing. Well, that all led to what I think is what I used to think was the biggest failure, but it's really a big lesson, but it's a big failure too. I, I offered, I, I was told, and this is how I ended up in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. I was told that they were going to take this rec- record shop. It was called Beats with a Z, like everything in Utah is at the end of it, like the Utah Jazz and the Bees and this and that. And I said, okay, well, I'll be a managing partner and I'll invest in this business and we're going to franchise out into Portland. So it was a chance to get out of Salt Lake and it was a chance to start a, a business. And so while I was working at the record shop, I, I made, which I thought was huge at the time, and it's, it's no small chunk, chunk of change. I made, I went to the bank, I got a $15,000 loan, and I basically handed this guy $15,000 with wow. no paperwork, uh-huh. nothing, right? Just a handshake. And, um, and I said, okay, well, we're all, we're all going to move out to Portland and we're going to open a record shop. And so he had my money. And the next week, this is so messed up. He owned next door to the record shop. He owned this little met- metaphysical 
shop. I don't know what else you call it, like a new age shop, like where they sold mm-hmm. crystals and all the Oh, uh huh. Yeah, I know what you mean. Salt globes. So so I was sitting in his shop talking to him, and then I see two Utah sheriffs come in, put him in handcuffs, and away he goes. Wow. And I thought, what the hell? I thought this was a good guy, right? He wasn't a good guy. He was defrauding a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I I was I was kind of stuck though. I I already quit my job. I already rented a place in Portland. And so my wife and I and, and another a guy named Mark, a buddy of mine, we all moved out to Portland to do this anyways. This guy disappeared and I felt like the biggest, I mean, it was, it was stupid, no doubt compared to how I approach things. If I, <laughs> if I didn't have the ability to sit here and talk with people like you who have learned these lessons, I would have probably done the same thing to be quite honest. It's like, it's easy to, if people are, are charismatic enough, it's easy to kind of fall for that, to be honest. I mean, I think I would do the same thing. Yeah, he was, I, I think he was a sociopath for sure. Um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and, and then he came out to Oregon and I started reading stories how he was doing the same, the same thing with different hotels and stuff, like little motels. And yeah. so my $15,000 was gone. And I think the biggest impact of that was how I took it. I took mm-hmm. that failure, like, I would say it took me at least two years to get over that and kind of get any kind of self-esteem back, you know, I'm ashamed to say that now, but it took a while to figure out what the heck, like, I just felt like the biggest fool, you know? So, I mean, what I learned from that is like you were just saying, there's a lot of charismatic folks out there and that really doesn't mean a hell of a lot. And I'll never make Mm -hmm. a deal just on a handshake anymore. You know, if there's a problem with a contract between two parties, then there's something there's something iffy about that deal. So, I the I think the biggest lesson too is I'll never I'll never let myself go into the hole like that again emotionally, or I'll never let myself take a failure like that. Um, mm-hmm. I've learned to move on a lot faster. <laughs> I yeah. was or twenty five at the time, so. Yeah. Right. No. And I like to reiterate what I had said earlier too, is I am also at that age and I think uh, not a problem for younger investors, but now we have the ability to, you know, research people, this and that, the age of information, we have so much at our fingertips. However, I think if I didn't have a certain knowledge of knowing, oh, well, these are the things you need to do. These are, this is the due diligence you need to take on even your partner that you would invest in. I think I could easily find myself making the same mistakes. So I think it's a huge lesson to learn. And I think the big takeaway, like you were saying, is definitely how do you move on from something like that? How do you reorient your mind in a way that's, that takes it away from the fact that this was a failure to know this is a lesson and this is how I can start to, to move on from that. So, I mean, thank you for being open and honest and for, for sharing that story. It, it sounds like it's it's definitely um, something that was very difficult for you, but it's clearly something that you've been able to take and turn into a positive thing. Yeah. You know, like you've heard that phrase, trust and verify. I think mm-hmm. that, I think that's so backwards, man. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> verify. 
then trust. <laughs> like, yeah. <you> know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it yeah. is definitely something that I think that uh, a lot of younger investors, a lot of younger people should definitely bear in mind as well. I mean, you do it when you're meeting someone online and you want to make sure you're not being catfished. So why wouldn't you do it for an investment? <laughs> totally, man. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think, um, is there anything, you know, following that story that after, you know, you, after those two years, how did you, where did the, where did the change come into play? Like where did the, the passion come back for investing? How did you get back on track and how did you let your, let your mind get back on track and learn to like kind of quote unquote love again, if that makes any yeah, sense? Yeah. Um, that's a good question that, cause it, it seemed to take a while, but I would, I would say that when, when I started doing what I loved again, um, when I started, um, I started doing the music thing again, I started DJing and then and I started following my passion. And then, but I think the biggest change was I started to, I think it was when I went back to engineering school and I saw like, um, that's when I became a lot more engaged in uh, the possibilities, what the mm-hmm. possibilities of the future could be. So that's when my eyes were opened back up, you know, like I like always tell the story that to, in order to get into engineering school, like even though I had a biology degree, I wasn't required to take any kind of serious math. And so in, in order to get into engineering school, I had to pass calculus one and I never took calculus. So mm-hmm. I, I went to the library and I got this book, you know, idiot's guide to calculus or dummy's guide to calculus or something like that. And uh-huh. I studied that for six weeks and I taught myself calculus mm-hmm. and like, doing things like that, that really builds your confidence. And I got, I got into engineering school and I loved it. Um, yeah, I just started, I just got back on my feet and started doing what I loved. And yeah, at some point you got to move on, man. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that that's, first of all, that's really cool because I, um, notoriously failed calculus in high school. And then again, when I had to take pre-calc and things like that in college, there was never a point in time where I did like well in calculus. So that's super impressive just from my standpoint. But I think it also says a lot. Um, in terms of you know an investor's mindset of how you can really pick yourself back up, um, so that was that's really awesome to hear. Thank you, Mike. Um, yeah. How did you how did you then develop uh, first force fund and first position capital? What did they do, and how did they differ? And uh, who is a typical client of these note funds, and how do they benefit from this investing? So, um, like anything, I learned from failure. Um, I, I bought my first note November 2017, and that went fine. That wasn't the big deal. But I quickly learned, this is how Force the Fund started. I quickly learned about security laws when I was, uh, when the Better Business Bureau pointed out to me that I can't be promoting investments or trying to get capital from other people without registering with the SEC. Mm-hmm. And so that scared the hell out of me. And I immediately started looking into how I, how I could do that. I learned about, um, you know, syndicated 
syndicated funds, if you want to call it that, or uh, I know that's a fancy word now, a syndication. Um, but essentially, it's a private placement. And so I started Force to Fund because I wanted to grow what I knew, would, what I thought would work. And that was growing note investing and, and growing, um, just increasing the number of investments I could buy. And I knew to do that, you know, as they say, OPM, I need other people's money. And so that's how Force the Fund started. I dropped, mm-hmm. I think, 15K with a, a uh, securities attorney. We drew up the paperwork. To, well, I mostly drew up the paperwork. They just kind of guide you. So, but it was a better 15K than the other 15K. And so I, um, that's how that started. And we just closed that one out not too long ago. And the mm-hmm. perfect person, because of the laws, I mean, to start with, the perfect person's accredited, right? They have the net worth. They make a certain income. But more than that, that doesn't always, they're not always the perfect person. I think from what I've seen, the perfect person that we can help the most is people that they want passive income. In other words, they want to, they want to cover their life's expect their life expenses with cash flow from it. They want to make their money work for them so that it covers their expenses. So they're free to do other things. That's, that's number one. And number two, they're they're of like mind like me. Like I think Warren Buffett has the two main rules of investing. You know, he says the first rule of investing is don't lose capital. And then he says the second rule of investing is see see rule number one. And so that's that's the bottom line with the the best client I come across is they understand that I mean I don't like shooting down asset classes, but like in the market, stock market. When your stock goes down, that money's gone. Nothing's back in it. So they, even though the the return might be a little lower, the perfect investor for us, they understand what risk versus return means or return versus risk. So they understand mm-hmm. that even though they're getting a lower return than say maybe a syndicated apartment deal or something like that, they know at the end of the day, that if everything goes south, things go bad, their capital is protected by the collateral underlying the mortgages or the trustees. So that's those are the, those are my those are my favorite people. Is I'm not saying uh, investors are greedy if they want bigger returns, but my favorite my favorite people are the ones that um, they want to make their dollars little employees. They want their dollars to have baby dollars. You know, mm, that's a good, that's a nice metaphor. That's a good way to yeah. put it. I, <laughs> yeah. They, that's what they, they want their money to work for them. And that's how they, they kind of see, they see their money as when you, I mean, you work, people work their butt off for their money mm-hmm. and when they get a paycheck and it can, a couple things can happen to it. It can disappear forever or some of it can be set aside to reproduce more money. And the, the, the people that understand that, um, they're my favorite people because there, there's a lot of shiny objects out there, you know, where huge returns are promised. And, um, 
I love, I like people maybe that have been beaten up a little like I have in life, you know, where they've made some mistakes and, and now they understand that you got to kind of cover your backside. You got to protect yourself. And so they, they understand that those are, those are the best investors, you know, in my opinion for this type of investing for sure. Oh yeah. No, I, I see exactly what you mean. I think you raise a lot of great points here. The fact that these are folks that similarly to, you know, yourself or myself would probably be, you know, in the wrong set of eyes considered a pessimist, but they're also looking at the full picture. I think being able to look at every possible outcome on something, especially when it comes to your money and how to make it work for you rather than have it disappear and it never be seen again. And that's something you've worked very, very hard for, and that can easily crush someone's mind. Um, I think being able to kind of look at it from all angles and being able to say, okay, well, this is an understanding of my risk, my return, my, all of those things that you bring up, Mike, I think that, you know, um, that makes a ton of sense. And hopefully, you know, anybody listening who is considering where to start, where to start looking to put investments can, can say, okay, well, do I want to, where do I want my risk and my reward to pay off basically? So I I think that that's, it's really helpful to hear. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, and there's, there's something to be said about diversifying too. It's, you know, like I I have investors that they, they play with Bitcoin and, um, other things like that, you know, and I don't think, I don't, there's always more money out there, you know, but I think the one thing that, uh, this is something I, I think a lot, maybe some investors don't think about a lot is the value of time. So you can always get more money, but the time it takes to get that money, you might, and the time it takes to lose that money, you're going to lose it a lot quicker than you can get it back. So mm-hmm. you'll never get the time back that, if that makes sense, like um, you can lose it really quick, but the time you lose getting it back it's, it might not be worth it. It might not be worth that risk, you know? So we're not all going to live forever, you know? So. Right. <laughs> as great as it would be to, to be invincible and have money forever. I think that's so true. The idea that, oh, uh, um, the, the fact that, you know, you, you, you bring up a great point with time economy. I definitely think the idea that, um, an investment needs to be, just as much of an investment of your time as it is of your money um, and assessing that as just as much of a, a factor in all of this as the the hard stuff, the money stuff, um, I, I think is a good way to look at things as well. Time is the only thing that, among all things in, in life, time is the only thing that's equal for all of us in terms of, in meaning mm-hmm. we, only, we all get 24 hours a day. Everybody, that's it. That's all we get. That's the only thing that makes us the one consistent thing for all of us is that. So something that it's something to be highly considered. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Thank you. Um, so looking at, you know, um, the types of clients that you work with, you talk about, you know, they are definitely people who understand alternative investing and how their returns can ultimately pay off um, from that. Do you have any clients who participate in your note funds who work with self-directed IRAs and do they have uh, any, does anything different have to happen for them or do you, um, is it something that you've worked with people before who have, um, who have invested with you with their self-directed IRA? Well, 
Yeah, we have a lot. We actually over over half of our investors use their self directed IRAs, and there's a lot of benefits to using self directed IRAs. It's as far as note investing goes, it's super tax efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if you buy a rental property in your self directed IRA, you you have to play, pay. Um, I think it's called UDIT, unrelated debt income tax, and and um, since notes aren't leveraged. Uh, like there's no way to get a loan on a loan. Usually that's, that doesn't come into the equation. Uh, I mean, I love, I love investors who use their self-directed IRAs. The only, the only, the only part that they don't get to take, they don't get to participate in the cash flow. but that's fine. That's because it's a retirement account, right? That's not the purpose of a retirement account. They're right. actually some of the smartest cookies we come across as far as investors go, because they, they're building their nest egg using very, they're not, they're not messing around with that money. They're, they understand like we've been talking about a lot in this, this podcast, they understand risk versus return and, and they want to protect that money. So yeah, they want to put that money to work too, which is awesome. Or else it's just, there's, I I don't know how much, how much money is sitting in self-directed IRAs not working right now, but the one that's, it's, they're taking an active role in their investing. So it's great to talk to those people. And yeah, like I said, over half of half of them, half of our investors use that, use their self-directed IRAs for sure. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I agree. We have some of the people that we work with at Camera Plan are some of the some of the smartest people and some of the most creative minds. And being able to use this as a vehicle to put your money to work for the future, which you know, we just talked about time and making an investment of your time just as much of an investment of your money. I think that it's definitely, um, it's a, you know, without being like, oh, promoting self-directed IRAs because I work for Gamma Plan. It's the idea that, um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an, a very cool concept. One that I honestly didn't know about before I started working here. So um, it, I agree with you on a lot of those things where it's, it's, it's a cool way to express yourself, I think, creatively through investing. I, I didn't know about self-directed IRAs till I uh, got into note investing because they, they go very much hand in hand for a lot of people. And so I, I became aware of self-directed. You know, I, I have, I mean, everybody, a lot of people have IRAs, but the mm-hmm. idea that you get a say in what you do with your money, I mean, come on, that's awesome, man. It's and very it's, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they're, they're, they they really need to be. Um, I wish I wish more employers offered offered that as an alternative to, you know, you go with our brokerage and yada yada, and you get what you get, you know. So it's it's something that needs to. I wish more people knew about for sure. Yeah, definitely. I agree. It's um. It's a great. It's a great resource to get to educate people on too, kind of providing this as, you know, this is an option that you have for yourself to to set yourself up for a stronger financial future. It definitely um it's a it's a rewarding thing to be able to educate people on for sure. Um is there a tool that you currently use or any resources that you currently use to kind of keep up with your knowledge of the note the, the note industry or investing in general, Mike? Is there anything that you kind of refer back to now or you know, are there any new books or any movies or shows or YouTube series, anything that you've watched recently or resources that you still use to 
learn new things about investing or keep up with your current knowledge of it? Well, as far as the mortgage, the note industry, um, there's a couple. I follow a company, they're called Black Knight, and they give great uh, data reports on what's going on in the industry every month. Um, I'm kind of a data nerd, so I, I'm always going on the St. Louis Federal Reserve website. And I think mm-hmm. for any financial nerd, it's a tre- treasure trove. You can, you can look at how much, you know, you can break down all the debt that's happening in the United States and you can see where the opportunities are coming or going, but you can see how much of the total debt is delinquent, how much of the total debt is 30 to 60 days delinquent, how much is not performing. So you can track all that stuff. Um, as far as keeping like a, a pulse on what's going on in the financial world in general, even though I, I don't heavily invest in stock and equities, I'll still, uh, listen to um, podcasts like Seeking Alpha to stay informed on that stuff. I'm actually, uh, to stay informed, I'm, I'm actually the vice president of the American Association of Individual Investors in Portland here, which totally focuses on stocks. And I did that just to keep learning about that stuff. Um, a lot of it has my head spinning most of the time. So that's no, why same. I, you know, I, I, I try to focus on the data because when I listen to the news, it's, it's very emotionally driven. Uh, there's people in the industry, in the note industry. There's a guy named Paul Burkett from a company called Automation Finance. And these, some of these cats, they have these huge funds, these huge mortgage funds with like 2,500 mortgages in them. And so they're, they're people totally worth listening to. But as far as like um, books, I'm always, I'm always really interested on, uh, I'm very, I'm getting more interested uh, in uh, marketing, but I'm also getting a lot more interested in, because I think my, my only obstacle is me as far as my success. So a book I'm reading right now, which is not really investment related, but I think I think you have to keep developing yourself as a human if you're gonna. I think if you're gonna make more money, you you have to keep developing yourself as a human being, or if you're gonna keep succeeding or improving. So the, the book is called "Release Your Breaks" by Jim Newman, um, and that's a, it's it's a science based book on how how we create our own reality, how that actually happens in our brain. And how we can actually do something about changing that. So that's 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 called constructive imagination. That's really that's been really turning me on lately. Um, and the other one, the other thing I've been reading and watching a lot of is his name's Dan Kennedy, and he's this marketing guru guy with this huge handlebar mustache. Um, <laughs> and I was so the reason. The reason I mention him is so when you're doing when you're doing note investing, sometimes uh, it's not such a pretty industry because ultimately you're holding somebody's contract that says uh, you have to pay your mortgage or you can't stay there, right? And so some sometimes you have to kick people out of their houses, you have to foreclose on them, uh, and. Um, the reason I mentioned him is because I 
had a mortgage in Indiana. And these folks, they had a 14% interest rate. And they couldn't pay. The wife had health problems. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't pay their mortgage. And so I did what's called a loan modification. And I, I cut their interest rate in half. So their, their payments went down um, by over half. So they were paying about a little over a, a little over a little under half than what they were. And I thought, this is great. You know, and I, I still remember the day that I had to choose what to do with these folks. Like I called my wife and I was, I'll be honest. I was almost in tears because I mm-hmm. thought, man, I'm going to like, I don't want to kick these people out of their house. Right. Right. Yeah. So I I thought to myself, I'll just give them the best deal I can. And then if things go south after that, we'll see what happens. Well, things have gone south. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the unfortunate thing about human reality. It's like I used to look at money like a zero sum game, meaning if I'm taking money from you, then somehow. you're going to be less privileged or I'm somehow taking advantage of you. Um, and the reason I mentioned Dan Kennedy is it's the first, it's the first person that's talked about money. That's really changed my mind about it. Mm-hmm. Where it's like whether, and I'm going to have to foreclose on these people, unfortunately, but because I have investors, you know, but whether mm-hmm. I'm in their life or not, whether it's me taking their money or the liquor store, or the fuel pump, or car insurance, whether I'm in their life or not, I, it's not going to change how they've dealt with money their whole life. So right. it's really, it's kind of an attitude you, that I've had to maybe mature into doing this stuff because I, I used to be very sensitive about that. And um, now I see like, maybe it's not a zero sum game, you know, maybe for everybody, everybody's dead and keeping everybody in their house because at some point this is investing. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have somebody else's capital, you've made a promise to that person to pay them back. So it's, it's like this, it's an old, it's an old conflicted story. I think, a lot of people have about money, but Dan Kennedy, he's really changed my mind about how money works big time. Yeah. Yeah. I've written all that, um, all both the release your breaks and Dan Kennedy's name down, Mike. I think that I'm someone who definitely is someone who leans immediately to the emotional reaction of just about everything that happens in my life. But I think um, the fact that you bring up a great point of the idea that, you know, investor as investors, we're accountable to a degree, but that accountability doesn't always mean taking full responsibility. And every individual is accountable for certain things. And I, I think that, you know, as hard as it is, definitely being able to distance yourself from, I've heard a lot of people come on here and say, you know, you can't be emotional, you can't be emotional, but in a tangible way, what does that actually look like? I think, you know, you put it in good terms of, um, or you put it in great terms of this idea that, you know, it's not completely relinquishing yourself of compassion for the people who live in this, uh, who live in this house, who can't make the mortgage payments or that, and that sort of thing. It's, it's more just the idea of, 
okay, well, this is the way that they've handled money. This is the way I need to proceed with handling money myself because I have a certain accountability and they have a certain accountability. I mean, I just think it's a, it's a good way to phrase it and kind of contextualizes what it means to not be quote unquote so emotional when it comes to investing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I always say, I mean, I gave them the, the way I look at that deal is, and I, I was almost in tears with my wife. And so I, right. so the way I, I, I maybe justify it all is I gave them a sweet deal, man. Like mm-hmm. no bank on the planet would give them that deal, you know? Right. And so um, it's like, don't, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So for sure. Well, yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the candor and you being able to share that story with us. I think that'll be really helpful for uh, listeners here as well. And kind of, again, contextualize some of these things that, you know, they've heard from every different forum that they've looked at from investing and kind of being able to hear a, a very personal story and what that actually can look like. So thank you. Got it. Um, so I'm curious, you know, we've talked, you are in Texas at the moment. You're traveling the country right now in a 2020 RV that you were able to finance through the passive income on these note funds. So how has travel impacted your investments? I'm curious if at all, you know, are you able to maintain things um, from any distance and um, with this type of investing? Or have you learned anything new from your travels about investing? Well, as far as impacting the investments, notes has always been a very, one thing I love about investing in notes and mortgages and trustees, yada, yada, is it's a very phone and internet-based business. So as long as you have a cell signal, and a internet connection, you're good to go. You can keep in touch with mm-hmm. all your vendor, and so that so all the assets have been performing as they would, whether I'm here or or whether I'm in Timbuktu. So there's no effect there. Uh, one thing that's been a real pain in the beginning, uh, we need to use a mail forwarding service, and oh, so that's mm-hmm. getting that set up and getting that consistent has been a little difficult. Uh, there's been a lot of times where I've had to drive like, you know, like a hundred miles to find a notary to get, to, to get some paperwork yeah. notarized and say, oh. yeah. And so that's been a little, that's been a little bit of a pain, but other than that, it's been good. Um, but as far as I, this was, this is pretty unexpected. We've been staying in these, I always thought, I, I didn't know what to think about mobile parks or RV parks. I, I've mm-hmm. seen mobile parks back home and they're not, they're not nice mobile parks. They're, they're like, they're, they're kind of dumps, right? But there, there are some luxury mobile parks or RV parks that we've been in. I mean, it's a really, as far as investing goes, I'll give you, you know, we've been thinking about investing in mobile homes now in mobile parks. Um, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can, for example, you, you know, for like 60 K you can buy a thousand square foot home in a really nice, like in South of Texas here, not here, but where we were, which is an hour from the beach, a brand new home. And if you're, you're going to use that as an investment, you can rent that thing out like six months of the year at 1500 bucks. 
and your lot fees are super tiny. And so it kind of opened my eyes to thinking, well, I wonder how this, how do you scale? Because now I'm, I'm trying to think bigger than I would on a single deal. So now I think, man, how would you scale something like this? Because on, on inspection, I'm like, man, you're at least making 14%, you know, which isn't so bad. And so that's, that's been huge is finding out these different ways. But the one thing that has, I think stinks for everybody right now, whether you're traveling or not is the one thing I miss and I consider it part of investing is, is meeting people face to face, going to networking events, being able to go to lunch with investors, being able to just connect on that level, even shake somebody's hand. Um, (laughs) <laughs> in the RV parks we're in, they actually have these signs hanging up that says, it says, no handshake zone. So it's like, why are you touching each other, man? So, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no handshake zone. So, um, <laughs> and you, coming across these like different communities too, it's like, you get to look at, I'm always looking at real estate prices and, it's amazing how much the fair market value of homes varies across the, the U.S. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy, and for what you get for the value of what you're paying for, um, it's cra- It's really interesting to do some like back of the napkin analysis on some of these deals and see like you know in some places taxes aren't that big of a deal. In other places, they're a major factor in, on your returns. So it's opened my eyes to like, even when I'm looking at notes now, typically I'm just looking at the value of the home. But now it's like when I'm thinking of exit strategies or different ways, um, when we get out of those deals, what we're going to do afterwards, I'll, I'll definitely take the region those mortgages are in a lot more seriously because I'm starting to see a lot more a, a lot more facets, you know, of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you bring up a lot of really amazing and interesting points that, you know, I wouldn't have even thought about, it, especially the tax thing. You know, my sister is coming home from having worked in California for six months and everything, like she wanted to get an Apple Watch, but the big thing was, oh, I'm going to wait until... I'm home because California tax is crazy and blah, blah, blah. And right. so like, just things I just hadn't thought about before. I was like, oh, well, I've been in Pennsylvania my whole life and I just haven't thought about how different regional taxes would affect even any, like in terms of investing, like even purchasing a house somewhere in Texas versus California versus Pennsylvania versus New York and how how all those different factors come into play. So I think that's a really cool point that you bring up. I mean, Oregon had no sales tax. So, oh, wow. Uh huh. At first, we, you know, by just, I'd be out buying like maybe a six pack of beer or something. I'd be like, wait, you guys overcharged me, man. <laughs> you know, no. Yeah. I didn't me. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. I think um, I forget where I was. I think I was in Chicago and visiting someone in the, the, prices there were so different than what I was used to like going to a drugstore there and just getting like a toothbrush I was like I felt like I was getting ripped off <laughs> but, but yeah definitely uh it, it's definitely a factor to think of so Mike thank you so for all of this information and for all of the 
the very personal details and stories that you've provided today, I think that they're going to be really helpful for a lot of people to listen and take stock of, you know, their own investments, their time, who they are, and, you know, what they want to get out of their financial future. So, you know, thank you for sharing all this with us. The One of the big questions that we do ask all of our guests is, what you would say your keys to building wealth and unlocking financial freedom are. So this doesn't have to be financial. I think you've kind of covered a large gamut of just, we've covered mental health, time, all of these different things. But what is something, um, if you can boil everything down to like a few major points, what are the ways or the things that have informed the way that you look at success? Yeah, I, this, this, this is a totally crazy question that I never stopped thinking about. Mm-hmm. And it, I used to think it was what degree I had, what job title I had, yada, yada, right? Um, But how I define success now is it's am I able to live the way I want to live? That's success to me. If you're living how you choose to live, you're a success. In other words, if you can be brutally honest about what you want out of life, and go after it and not feel the need to compare yourself to others and not feel compelled to have to impress others or fit into some societal box, man, you're, I think for most people that they're, that's like 80% of it. Um, and then of course I, I, I've never, I used to understate the importance of money, but, um, money's, money's really important in our lives and it's something to not, take for granted. And it's, I'd I'd be remiss if I said, you know, like you can be successful mentally, but if your success to me is being, having the freedom to do what you want and live the way you want. And, and, and unfortunately the reality of things is that comes with a price tag. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't have to be a big price tag. Like, um, Mm -hmm. like, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess I can just give you an example is, I never really wanted to live in a house, but I bought a house anyways. I've always wanted to mm-hmm. travel. And it's ta- it's taken me, I'm 45 now, so it's taken me 20 years to to figure out how to arrange myself and arrange my life to do that. And so success, I think success is living the way you want. And I think it's not, you know, not comparing yourself to others, not trying to impress anybody. And not not giving up on, I hate to sound cheesy, but it's it's not giving up on your dream, no matter what, man. Because the only failure there, the only failure in life is quitting. That's it. You just don't quit, man. Just keep getting up. Life's gonna knock us all down. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you, Mike. You have me feeling, I'm, I'm almost like near tears. This is a, this was such an empowering conversation. I feel like to go into the week of Thanksgiving and kind of remind ourselves what, what to be thankful for in a year like this. So I, thank you so much. This has been such a, such a lovely conversation to have with you. Likewise, for sure. Thanks. Thank you. So I can't wait to share this information with our listeners. The last question that we do ask everybody before we sign off is how can people reach you? If folks are listening and they want to get in touch with you, do you have a website or social media that listeners can use? Yeah, I, I'm big on LinkedIn. So to find me on LinkedIn, <laughs> if you search Michael Jones, <laughs> good luck. 
But if we search uh, first position capital, uh, you'll find me. And if you're on Meetup and you search Mortgage Note Investing Network, you'll find me. Uh, if you have a phone and you dial 503-432-6070, I'll talk to you for sure. And then, of <laughs> course, um, I have my website, uh, www.firstpositioncapital.com, and it's the, it's 1stpositioncapital.com, uh, not the word first. Um, and then you can all con- contact me those ways for sure. Got it. Well, thank you again, Mike. We really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us today. Thank you, Jessica. Of course. So everyone listening, please be on the lookout for any upcoming Cama Plan events that will feature Michael Jones and First Position Capital. But until then, thank you everyone for joining us on the road to financial freedom. Tune in next week to hear more from our experts who have paved their roads to financial freedom. Or you can call Cama Plan today to learn more about how you can start to take control of your future wealth. Thanks, everyone. Thank you all for tuning into our podcast. We truly hope that you're enjoying your ride along the road to financial freedom so far. If you like what you've heard and learned, or if you want to hear more about certain topics that we may have already covered or have yet to cover, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. We would love to hear any feedback from you so that we may continue to make our podcast the best that it can be for you, our listeners. Thanks again, everyone. And remember, tune in next week to the road to financial freedom.